Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove, and this is part two of our three-part series with Dr. Debashish Banerjee on the language of the gods. Dr. Banerjee is the academic dean at the University of Philosophical Research. He is also an adjunct faculty at Pasadena City College and the California Institute of Integral Psychology. Furthermore, he is the author of several books, including Seven Quartets of Becoming the Transformative Yoga, based on the diaries of Sri Aurobindo, and also Rabindranath Tagore in the 21st century, and a book about his great-grandfather, Abhinindranath Tagore. Welcome again, Debashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. Pleasure to be with you. Likewise. In our previous segment, we were talking about the concept of Maya. It's a Sanskrit word. Yes. It also represents a goddess. Yes, it does. And, and we were addressing some confusion about the meaning of the term because yes. to, to some people, Maya is synonymous with illusion, but you were yes. describing another way of looking at it. Yes, indeed. So, Maya as a uh, term that means illusion actually comes out of some of the interpretations of the Upanishads, mm -hmm. particularly the interpretations related to what is called Advaita Vedanta that was founded by the philosopher Shankara or Shankaracharya. Uh, so, Shankara looked at uh, Maya as an illusion-producing power mm -hmm. of Brahman. And so, he was trying to answer the question of the kind of experience we found ourselves in, which was an experience of um, falsehood in the sense that we experience things uh, in a world of suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, we experience uh, the cessation of death. Uh, we experience ignorance. And hence, we can't even function properly in the world due to our ignorance. Mm -hmm. So, how did all this come about if Brahman or the divine is alone the truth that there is? So, his answer was that this is a kind of a cinematic projection by some power of within Brahman, mm -hmm. within the, the, the divine, within truth. Yes. And we are trapped within that cinema, you mm -hmm. may say. And we take that for the reality. But if we can get out of it, then we can know mm -hmm. truth as that which has projected this. We're sometimes caught up in the movies of our lives. Right. Uh -huh. It's interesting that this kind of an explanation also has similarities with Plato's parable of the cave. Yes. Where the reality of the sun was outside the cave, but the shadows it threw was all that people saw. Mm -hmm. And they thought that that was the reality. So, we are trapped in that world of sh shadows. Mm -hmm. uh, to Shankara, what this meant was that we needed to get out from this appearance and get into the, the truth from which the projection came, the phenomenal projection came. Mm -hmm. And so, that's why he saw Maya as an illusion-producing power. Mm -hmm. 
But other philosophers have seen it differently as just the creative power of Brahman mm -hmm. that presents a certain kind of truth in a certain uh, manifestation. Mm -hmm. But so long as we take that manifestation to be primary, then we are living within an illusion. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a secondary reality, not an illusion, but really another kind of appearance of the truth. Mm -hmm. So if we know the truth, then we can re-engage um, mm -hmm. with the world as we know it in a different way, in a truthful way. Now the, so that, that's the other way of looking at Maya, uh -huh. not as an illusion-producing power, yes. but as a creative power which has the ability to show us its truth mm -hmm. as well as uh, the appearance. The word, I understand it, well, there are several words, but yes. one of the words for truth yes. in Sanskrit is vidya, is yes. it not? True, absolutely, yes. And uh, the opposite of vidya is avidya. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, this is also, these two are, this this uh, duality mm -hmm. is also an Upanishadic, you know, the terms that come to us from the Upanishads. Yes. And uh, literally speaking, the word vidya means knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so often you'll see it translated with not with a capital K, knowledge. Mm -hmm. And avidya is the opposite of vidya, so it's often translated as ignorance with a capital I. Mm. Um, so, this world of appearances that we talked about, the projection of maya, if you want to call it that, yes. mm -hmm. um, it's been called the ignorance. And so, we, you know, you, you hear the famous phrase, living in an ignorant world. Mm. So the, where is the ignorance? The idea of the ignorance is very interesting. If we see how they talk about what is ignorant in our experience, uh, the notion is that all our experience of everything other than ourselves is inferred. Mm -hmm. We sense it. I can see you with my eyes and I can create a picture of you in my brain. Yes. And I can talk to you as something which I imagine is actually sitting there mm -hmm. because you're actually happening inside my uh in my brain. Your sensorium. Right, mm -hmm. in, inside my sensorium. Or the sensorium of our viewers listening to this conversation. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, whatever I know of you is being inferred by me from the data of the senses. Mm -hmm. I'm taking the symptoms that I'm seeing for the person that you are. But actually, you are not the sum of your symptoms. And if I really were to know you, if I were to have knowledge of you, I could only do that by being you. See, so otherwise, th there is a certain kind of ignorance mm -hmm. that I'm passing off as knowledge. Yes. So according to these seers or thinkers, or whatever knowledge we come to out of inference mm -hmm. was a kind of ignorance. Mm -hmm. While the only true knowledge that we could have was if we could be whatever we wanted to know. This can, is a very profound idea because yes. it suggests uh, through yoga that we can actually become these other alien beings or objects. Absolutely. So there's a very famous Upanishad which fields this as a question mm -hmm. and it asks the question, is there something that can be known by which all things can be known? In other words, can we find the root 
of knowledge by which we can become anything in the universe and know it by being it. Mm-hmm. And th- the answer, of course, is Brahman. I mean, it's, it's the, the one being there is mm-hmm. who by power of Maya appears to be many beings. So by yoga, if we can a- a- arrive at unity with that one, then we can extend that unity and know everything else by the power of uh, identity. And, and Brahman, in this sense, is yeah. is like equivalent to the whole universe. Brahman is a, a, equivalent to the consciousness of the whole universe and what is beyond the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one conscious being. And that being has become this universe. Mm-hmm. And that being is Brahman. Well, uh, Brahman is often contrasted with Atman in Sanskrit. Yes, that's another contrast. You're very right. As you said, Brahman and Maya form a certain pair. Vidya and Avidya form a pair. And then Brahman and Atman form a pair. Mm -hmm. And that pair relates to the relationship between the individual and the divine. Mm -hmm. So again, it answers the question, if there is only one, how come there are so many beings? And the answer that it gives is that that one being is infinite, and therefore it can view itself infinitely. Mm-hmm. Just as if you were to view, reflect on yourself, you turn your attention, you introspect, you mm-hmm. turn your attention within and try to tell yourself who you are or what you are. But if you were of infinite potency, you do that same thing at the same time infinitely. Mm-hmm. You have infinite pairs of eyes, as it were, to look at yourself. And each of these self-regards would result in a line of inquiry, one Mm -hmm. may say, towards Mm self-knowledge. These are the souls. These are what are called Atmans. And so each creature, you, I, all of us, all our viewers, each one is a self-regard of Brahman. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, Brahman has become one of its ways of self-knowledge through each of these Atmans. Sometimes I hear it said, uh, it's like an equation, Brahman equals Atman. Yes. Since Brahman has become uh, all these forms Uh by which it knows itself, Mm -hmm. Atman is nothing other than Brahman. It's just another form of sort of self-regard of of Brahman. Does that mean that my innermost self is the same as the innermost self of the entire universe? It's absolutely true. That's exactly what it means. Mm -hmm. It means that if we are to experience ourselves as the Atman, and then, of course, the later uh, writings, and even in the Upanishads themselves, will more finely define the Atman as having different stations within us. Mm-hmm. And tantric literature will talk about different chakras or centers. Yes. And the Atman resides in a different way in each of these centers. So what happens is that the idea of yoga to unite with our true identity as the Atman lets us know that we are just nothing other than the self-regard of Brahman. Each of us is the Brahman who has become one particular way of knowing itself. Mm-hmm. We were talking a little earlier about the parity of uh, the one and the many. Yes. This is a big issue, I suppose, uh, in terms of the uh, interaction and sometimes conflict between the monotheistic cultures and yes. the polytheistic yes. cultures. 
Very true, very true, Jeffrey. And so we find in the monotheistic religions, for example, the what are called the Abrahamic religions, mm-hmm. um, in the monotheistic interpretations, I'd say, because if we really probe these religions, mm-hmm. we might find polytheism there too. Oh, yes. But if we look at the more mainstream um, monotheistic uh, interpretations, uh, we find that a dichotomy set is set up between the one and the many. Mm-hmm. And if we are to uh, worship the one God, we have to get rid of every appearance that can symbolize that God or that can actually uh, be something that relates to that God mm-hmm. in a variety of ways. Yes. Uh, but the way in which the Indian tradition looks at it is that the one being is infinite mm-hmm. and hence it can look at itself in infinite ways and each such way is a valid way of approaching the one. Mm-hmm. So polytheism and monotheism or monism uh, don't uh, are not contradictory in Hinduism. It's, it is a complex monism, if we want to call it that. Not so different from the idea, I suppose, of a trinity only is more than three. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, in the, in the Indian tradition, you have threes as well. So mm-hmm. th- again, there's a very famous, interesting uh, Upanishad in which a seer is asked the question, how many gods are there? And he answers, uh, there are 333. There are also 33. There are also three. There are one and a half. And there's one. (laughs) <laughs> so he's talking almost of a ladder of being mm-hmm. uh, by which uh, the infinity of the world can connect with the one mm-hmm. uh, through, if necessary, steps or rungs of organized energies mm-hmm. uh, of, of, on, at the cosmic plane, mm-hmm. which they're calling the gods. Uh-huh. Well, when it's suggested in the Sanskrit tradition that to really know another being or another object, you have to be Mm-hmm. that object. It's not just uh, poetry mm-hmm. like one might have in the metaphysical poetry of John Donne in the yes. English tradition. It's it's accompanied with uh, meditative exercises for attaining a state of consciousness where one merges yes. with the object of contemplation. Quite true, quite true. So, we find that uh, in the, uh, I mean, in, in Ordinary and secular conversation, we talk about uh, becoming somebody else through empathy. Mm-hmm. We say, I can empathize with you and feed your feelings. Yeah. Uh, actually, what we are saying is that there is a form of intuition that we are deploying uh, that gives us a certain kind of knowledge, which is not just the knowledge by inference. We, uh, we, it's, we are capable of arriving at degrees of internal knowledge uh, which, are, which is not just the knowledge of inference using the mind and the senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there is also the idea that uh, two people who are very close uh, can f- at times uh, experience each other. Mm-hmm. There is a sense of actually s- uh, thinking the same thought at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, having the same feelings, even seeing the same things in the same world. It's as if it's flavored by each other's uh, people who are in, deeply in love, for mm-hmm. example. These are forms of intuition where we exceed our ignorance and come close to knowledge with a capital K. Mm-hmm. So what we are being told here is that there are forms of, of meditation in which we can come into union with uh, the divine or with even objects 
So, you know, the, the, the Upanishads are themselves uh, literature for contemplation. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that contemplation takes certain stages, you know, that, and they define these stages as stages of yogic contemplation. And the final stage is going to be identity, mm -hmm. union. And if you have union, then you, you can extend that union into different forms of knowledge. You can have descriptive knowledge. By identity, you can then proceed to talk about the laws, the cognitive laws of that which you've become identical with. Mm -hmm. You can have emotional knowledge mm -hmm. uh, and you can also have practical knowledge. In other words, you can be able to have the properties of what you have become identical with yeah. express themselves. You can express them in your own life, mm -hmm. but you've really learned it through identity with something. Mm -hmm. So these are forms of knowledge. Now, I am under the impression that um, in the West, we have many similar ideas expressed mm -hmm. in poetry and in various sure. monastic traditions yes. here and there. The, the difference, as I understand it from yes. my Western perspective, has been suggested to me by philosophers, is that in the Vedantic tradition, you have a very extensive, very rigorous, logical, well-worked-out, detailed, systematic understanding, and, and that's different than what we have in the Western tradition. Yeah, I would tend to agree. It's it's a very detailed, systematic understanding and a very systematic uh, process uh, of practices mm -hmm. that they, uh, I mean, and that there's different teachers and mm -hmm. these teachers have all created their own science, as it were, yes. and technology, internal mm -hmm. technology to achieve these states. So I think that's exactly where when we talk about the language of the gods, mm -hmm. we're talking about an entire culture. And a language, and language, a form of expression of that culture, which is geared towards a systematic, uh, understanding and experience of these internal states. Uh, that would suggest that, um, ancient India, the, in the Vedantic periods, uh, was a nation of yogis. Uh, it may or may not have been a nation of yogis, but certainly there was a culture of yoga which was mm -hmm. quite powerful, strong, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, had its effects on society as a whole. Mm -hmm. I would certainly say that. Um, at a certain point, the yogis became outsiders. They became sannyasis. They left society. Yes. But they were what one might call socially sanctioned outsiders. Mm -hmm. They kept coming in and, you know, people gave them a lot of respect. Perhaps akin to the Hebrew prophets. Correct. Mm -hmm. And then also there were people within society who learned from them. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of influence on the courts mm -hmm. and they had a lot of influence on poets. They had influence on people in society who tried to duplicate their their processes as culture mm -hmm. and so in Indian culture was hugely indebted to these kinds of teachers mm -hmm. when we think of uh, culture yes. as a whole I'm reminded of the uh, three gunas Yes. In Sanskrit, rajasic, tamasic, and sattvic. Yes. These are sort of cultural forces that blend and, right. and mix together. Can you define them for me? Yes. So, 
the idea is just as you were talking about vidya and avidya uh, and all these kinds knowledge of knowledge and ignorance knowledge and ignorance yes there is the notion of purusha and prakriti yes and prakriti very broadly is nature mm-hmm. purusha is conscious being a yes. conscious person in all all human beings have something in them that is conscious sort of like the atman like the atman uh-huh. but it it may be a little more uh qualitative than mm-hmm. the the person yes and you find that a lot inside us is is automatic we have the laws of the body a lot of it is unconscious laws mm-hmm. uh we have laws of thought uh even the emotions and we know psychologists today we know that predictable responses can mm-hmm. be had within a narrow you know or slightly broader margin mm-hmm. right uh, for every kind of uh, our affective life mm-hmm. all the sort of moods uh, of our affective life mm-hmm. so it raises the question of whether we even have free will that that's that's the big question so mm-hmm. the the assumption in purusha and prakriti is that there is something with free will but it's hidden among a mass of conditionings mm-hmm. and so these conditionings are running according to three modalities yeah. these are modalities that you just mentioned you know tamas rajas and sattva mm-hmm. tamas uh, means uh, inertia mm-hmm. and it talks about the tendency of things to gravitate towards a big sleep you mm-hmm. know thanatos if you want to call it that mm-hmm. something which drives towards death uh then you have rajas which is a life force which is extremely active dynamic it's changing all the time but it doesn't necessarily have any intelligence to it mm-hmm. it's just changeful isn't it associated with the idea of the raja or the king it is associated with the idea of the raja because he's a very dynamic person mm-hmm. rajas so he's full of dynamic energy mm-hmm. and then sattva is the intelligent principle mm-hmm. in other words there is a certain kind of understanding involved there is a thirst for understanding involved in things which allows us to be effective in the world like a spiritual pursuit yeah so what we find is that uh, interestingly these three are related to the three kinds of consciousness mm-hmm. that we find ourselves uh, in in ourselves and in the world so physical consciousness the material world without life in it insentient material mm-hmm. world is purely tamasic mm-hmm. in other words its base form or condition of energy is inertia mm-hmm. um either it stays um you know without any movement or if you move it it keeps going mm-hmm. um then you have a life energy the energy that's in plants in animals uh which is largely rajasic it's got a kind of dynamism but of course the dynamism follows laws but the laws are not uh, ap- apparent to the creature mm-hmm. but in higher animals there's a greater amount of intelligence they seem to have a sense of uh, understanding they take the free will a greater degree mm-hmm. of choice so that's where uh, sattva has come into play mm-hmm. so in these systems the idea is that we have to make our consciousness more sattvic um in a way it's similar to saying that we have to purify our intelligence mm-hmm. and make that the leader of our um march and we'll find that that will open the doors to an even higher condition mm-hmm. which is free of the conditionings of these three types of uh, 
automatisms. So e even the pursuit of uh, spiritual truth, the sattvic pursuit, can be uh, conditioned, automatic. It can be, con it can be conditioned. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, there's a very famous parable told by the Indian modern mystic Ramakrishna. Mm -hmm. he, he tells this parable of a person who loses his way in the forest and encounters three robbers. Uh, they, they take away all his money. And then the first one says, let's beat him and kill him. Uh, the second one says, no, no need to kill him. Let's beat him and tie him up and leave him there. Mm. And the third one says, it's enough that we've robbed him. Let's show him the way out of the forest. Mm -hmm. So it says, these are the three. The, the first one who says, let's kill him is Tamas. Tamasic. Yeah. yeah. The Rajas or Rajasic is the guy who says, let's beat him up and tie him up. Mm -hmm. And the Satvik shows him the way out, but after he's robbed him. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh -huh. it, they're different grades of, of ignorance, mm -hmm. but the, the final one still has a way by which it gives us something greater. Mm. can point the way to something greater. But we can't stay stuck in a condition of sattva. Sattva also is a, a kind of a righteous ego, you may say. Mm. There is an ego involved there. We are stuck still within the automatisms of uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the ego of virtue. It sort of reminds me of a Zen phrase, the stink of enlightenment. <laughs> As soon as you call it enlightenment, you stamp it with your human stink. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, this is very interesting because we're beginning to point now towards the idea uh, within embodied within Sanskrit of the possibility that we can free ourselves from this uh, the world of conditioning that we're caught in. Absolutely. That's the whole aim of yoga. The aim of yoga is... Firstly, how can we uh, free ourselves from the world of conditioning? And secondly, how can we recondition this world so that it experiences creative freedom, mm -hmm. total creative freedom? Mm -hmm. It's um, very interesting. Uh, we're going to talk uh, some more about this in our third segment, and uh, probably some of our viewers will be interested in knowing that we do plan another session of, with three interviews on the integral yoga of uh, Sri Aurobindo. So we'll go into even further depth on uh, the thank possibilities you. for sure. human transformation. Sure. Devashish, thank you so much for being with me again. Thank you, Jeffrey. And thank you for being with us. Be sure to check your listings for part three of our three-part series on the language of the gods. Thank you.